This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Thank you for joining us for our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we are going to talk about cities and the ways in which the design and redesign of cities uh, across history and in our current moment uh, can enhance the nature of our democracy and the ways in which urban design can undermine the nature of our democracy. We're joined by one of the foremost practitioners uh, in this area, someone who's also written about these issues, uh, Ken Greenberg. Ken is an urban designer, teacher, writer, and former director of urban design and architecture for the wonderful city of Toronto. For over four decades, uh, he's played a pivotal role on public and private assignments in urban settings throughout North America and Europe. Uh, and if you go to his website, uh, which is uh, kengreedberg.ca, we will have this on our on our website, uh, you can see all the many cities that he has been a part of uh, working with over the course of his career. Ken has written uh, two major books, one called Walking Home, The Life and Lessons of a City Builder, and a second one called Toronto Reborn, Design Successes and Challenges. And he has a number of interesting pieces on his website, particularly a number of reflections on cities uh, in light of our current pandemic and how we should think about city life. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Before we turn to our discussion with Ken, of course, we have our poem, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem? Actualizing Emerald City. Let's hear it. Actualizing Emerald City. Cities, I wonder what you must have looked like to my grandparents and my great-greats when they steamed into Detroit from Hungary or New York Harbor from Russia and India. The gleaming towers, heavenly like the residue of Atlas holding up the sky or some actualization of the Emerald City they were yet to read about. But when they walked and fell into the garment district, when they quietly spread out into Traverse City, Chicago, Northern Maine, they must have seemed so different then the cities. In the 80s, my dad was growing up in the ruins of the American city, like a Springsteen song or the ashes at Pompeii, tramway, subway, on foot into the city, and my mom was in suburbia, glistening dull suburbia, Highland Park on the edge of the lake. No wonder they were driven to California, generation of urban decay. And sometimes I think I was born in the age of the rebirth of civilization, that once again we would walk the great walls of Uruk and bask in the greatness of bibliotechnical urban libraries, and sometimes I think I was born in the age of the final death. These are the times when the concrete presses down, the rusty parking lots, the smokestacks towering over the hill that towers over my high school. These are the times when I can't remember the way the sunrise glistens off the overpasses in the morning, rising from sleep and over the highwayed hill. And boy, do I feel like a fool, sitting here in a grass island of a house in the middle of a great city, unable to move past the fence. Even when I crawl off on evening walks, I am held like a tennis ball on a string, swung by centripetal force around the neighborhood park. Boy, do I feel like everything has stopped. The developing houses on the edge of the eroding creek that were supposed to tower over the sacred blue bonnets of the other bank. And it scares me to think of so many like me in San Diego, Philadelphia of the charming rust, and Mexico City, holed up in houses, waiting like open heart surgery on the nucleus of the city's soul. All those hundreds of urban hearts, bleeding on surgical stands, waiting for the lights to come on so they can be put back together by some miracle Frederick Law Olmsted in a surgical smock. 
I, I love your closing, Zachary, with a miracle Frederick Law Olmsted in a surgical smock, redesigning Central Park and all these things for us. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, what it's like as someone who has grown up in American cities all over the place and what it's like to uh, be a real cosmopolitan urban citizen, but also to recognize the major problems that face our cities and our urban communities today. Well, Ken, this is this is your area of expertise. Uh, what is it that that um, city planners and city designers like yourself? What, what is it that you do to to help cities deal with these challenges? Well, cities are one of the most remarkable of human creations, one of the most complex and one of the most interesting. And I think we've learned a great deal uh, about a certain humility in approaching the design of cities, that it's not really a matter of command and control, but it's understanding human society and how it interacts with the places that we inhabit and how we can intervene in interesting ways in collaboration with the inhabitants of cities to shape change as opposed to dictate top-down what will happen. Um, I, I cut my teeth at a very interesting moment uh, of great transformation um, when we were coming out of a period of urban renewal, which you may remember was the disemboweling of city centers, um, a kind of rejection of the historic city and the great exodus from cities out into suburbia. And I, I became part of a, a movement um, which was really about recognizing the great value of cities. I was lucky enough as, a, as an architecture student uh, to find myself in Toronto within months of the arrival of Jane Jacobs. And That's amazing. That's amazing. I, I had the, the nerve to actually call her as an architecture student. I, <laughs> I had read Death and Life. I was enthralled by the book. And I asked her to give me a crit of one of my student projects. And she was kind enough and generous enough to do that. And that became a lifelong friendship and a mentorship, uh, which I enjoyed from 1968 to her death in 2006. Wow. Um, pretty, pretty extraordinary. That is. Lucky man. Uh, Ken, for, for our listeners who might not be as familiar with Jane Jacobs' work as they should be, what, what was her critique that's obviously embodied in your own work of this uh, disemboweling of cities, as you put it, the critique of the Robert Moseses and the Ed Logues and the others who were hollowing out the cores of cities? So Jane started off, or her, her involvement with cities really started as somebody who just loved to walk the pavements of New York City as a young woman. Um, driven by uh, an insatiable curiosity as to how things worked. And she ended up being a journalist, and she wrote about everything from how the jewelry district, the how sewers functioned, how pretty much any phenomena that, that caught her eye or caught her attention worked in the city. And she ended up um, she married an architect. She ended up writing for an architectural journal, and she got caught up in the whole modernist project to redo the city uh, as an urban renewal, as I mentioned. And she, as an observer, trusting her eyes and not so much theory and not so much what she read, 
she began to see that that project was fatally flawed. And that led her to uh, a lifetime of trying to understand how cities actually functioned. And she brought a concept from biological sciences called organized complexity um, to explain that what people had seen as chaos and had reacted to wanting to organize human life in a, in a very regimented um, and systematic way actually had a kind of order and akin to ecology, akin to what we now understand about how different habitats function and interactions in an ecological setting. And she brought that understanding, uh, ending up writing a whole series of books, but beginning with a powerful book called Death and Life in Great American Cities in 1961, which really questioned what was going on, questioned the whole profession that I became involved in. Um, she was immediately um, a kind of celebrity. Um, she was highly critiqued by certain people who felt very threatened, who called her a housewife. How dare she hmm. intervene and, and raise these kinds of questions? And others who began to see the truth in what she was saying, which led to a whole different way of thinking about the city. And a lot of it had to do with the overenthusiastic embrace of the automobile in the aftermath of World War II. And so my first book, Walking Home, was really about decades of work having to do with getting us back on our feet, getting back to uh, a better understanding of how cities actually function. And my work with cities uh, across North America and in Europe and in other places on that project of revalidating the city and its workings and especially dealing with the public realm and things public. And it touches very closely on your theme of democracy because the city is the great place where democracy is acted out in space, yes. where people occupy public space, where they can express their views freely, where they interact with their fellows and where issues of equity uh, become extremely important. And so that period of intense transformation was where I started. And we're probably going to get around to what's going on today. But in a fascinating way, the the impact of COVID-19 and, and the pandemic has overtaken the previous agenda, which was the trajectory of my entire career. And in a sense, is piggyback on it, piggybacking on it and accelerating it. Interesting. Uh, b before we get to that, I want to hear a lot more about that. I know our listeners do too. But just to understand this paradox that I know you've thought about more than almost anyone else, maybe you and Jane Jacobs, um, if cities are these sites of democratization in their public spaces, but yet uh, we know as historians, they've traditionally been, as you said before, very top down, very much controlled by bosses of one kind or another. How do you how do you manage that that paradox? How do we work our way out of it? How have you thought thought this through in your work? Well, I mean, there's a whole tradition in the history of cities of republics. If we go back to the Greek city states, which of course had slaves. Right. When we talk about Greece, it wasn't a republic for everybody, but the notion of a citizen. And we've kind of gone back and forth in history between autocracy dictatorial rulers with cities, and then periodically um, 
movements that were about empowering citizens, not just subjects. And it's interesting how that has played itself out over time. And as in the earlier stages, there wasn't universal suffrage, obviously, uh, for a long time. Women didn't have the vote. We had um, terrible inequities. We had the whole history of, of slavery um, throughout the world, but particularly in, uh, in the U.S., um, overcoming who was a citizen and who had equal rights. And now uh, we're at a moment where all these issues about refugees, about immigrants, about people who are most affected, who are turning out to be most vulnerable in this period of COVID-19, all these inequities are being revealed. And there's constantly been a kind of push to extend the rights of citizenship, the full rights of citizenship. And I, I don't just mean legally in the sense of who has a passport, but the, the sense that all human beings in a city have a, a kind of basic set of rights and ability to live together peacefully. Cities, in essence, are about cooperation. Virtually nothing in a city can be accomplished without people collaborating and cooperating at, at a fundamental level. So there is that kind of tension that plays itself all the way through. But the other thing that's interesting about cities is the idea of diverse populations actually cohabiting yes. the same space as opposed to a kind of homogeneous tribal society in which everyone in the society is of one type or kind and so you have uh, really interesting examples like Andalusia uh, before the Inquisition in Spain, where you had Christians, Muslims, and Jews sharing the cities and bringing great prosperity to the city as a result, great discoveries, uh, a gene pool uh, that was incredibly valuable. My own city of Toronto, to take that all the way to the present day, has some very unique characteristics, which I wrote about in Toronto Reborn. One of them is that over 50% of us come from another country, wow. we're born in another country, and many other countries. I mean, literally uh, a couple of hundred countries, uh, and over 50% identify as visible minorities. And in Toronto, what's fascinating is that whereas in many other places, this fact of difference is seen as problematic or troubling. It happens to be for us the thing that Canadians generally and Torontonians and Vancouverites and Montrealers are very proud of because they see that it works. It sure. actually gives us enormous advantages. Sure. So, so I, I guess, and this brings us up to COVID-19 also, um, how, how do we understand the the two sides of this coin, right? So especially in, in U.S. cities like New York, you have this incredible diversity that we all recognize as the energy of the city. It's exactly what Jane Jacobs commented on as she was walking through Greenwich Village and elsewhere. On the other hand, these cities are also places of corporate power, Ken, right? This is, this is where the big corporate entities are located. And if you're talking about New York or Chicago or Austin, Texas, uh, a lot of the power is centered on these uh, organizations that, that don't necessarily reflect 
the experience in the street. How how do you, as an urban planner, think about that and think about giving agency to these attributes, these citizen attributes, these resident attributes that you're describing? So I think a lot depends on what we do with what COVID-19 is showing us. And I, like many others, are arguing that it is shining a really harsh light both on remarkable things that are working as we collectively face this this human tragedy that's upon us, but also on the things in our society that have not been working. And one of those has to do with um, a combination of an over-reliance on the markets, on market-driven capitalism, the shrinking of res publica, things public, Uh, And that coupled with the austerity agenda, and this really goes back several decades, you can trace it back to Richard Nixon, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, um, our own Prime Minister Stephen Harper, um, which really kind of inculcated a belief that the public, they they were running for office, but they were basically enemies of the public sector. And they succeeded in reducing it, and at the same time, the working out of the marketplace, particularly with uh, globalization, chasing a competitive advantage, outsourcing um, the manufacture of pretty much everything we rely on, creating these tenuous supply chains, but also taking away decent salaries, putting people in precarious employment without benefits. Um, All of these things were just accumulating and accumulating and in fact getting worse and worse And so now we see with this pandemic, to take a a dramatic example, what we've done to our seniors. Yes. Putting them in places where we thought a market solution to the last years of their lives with people who found it convenient to feed them badly, to have um, poorly paid people who were... Um, you know, the most marginalized people themselves uh, performing that those acts of care in, in their final years. And, you know, that's, they're the ones who are dying. It's most dramatically revealed. We're also seeing it in the inequal, inequal way in which the pandemic is affecting disadvantaged populations, uh, minorities, people of color in the U.S. particularly, um, immigrants, people who are forced to take transit because they, they can't work from home. They don't have any options. And ironically, those are the people we're now calling the heroes. They're the ones who are keeping us alive. And then we suddenly look and say, well, you know what? We haven't allowed them to have a decent living. We're paying them so badly that they haven't, they've been working on contracts. They haven't been able to have a single place of employment. So it's making us vulnerable because of what we've done to others. And one way in which we may come out of this with that recognition, and it's one of the great recognitions, not the only one from COVID-19, is certainly there's a lot of talk in the world that I live in of dealing differently with the issues of homelessness, of lack of affordable housing, of precarious salaries, of all these kinds of things that have created these terribly inequitable uh, and damaging conditions. How can we use urban planning specifically to alleviate inequality and poverty in North American cities and across the world? 
Well, I think we have to have deliberate strategies that deal with a number of things. How we move around the city, housing, understanding that housing for a significant percentage of our society cannot be supplied successfully only by the private market. I think we have to understand healthcare. Um, I, there's a really interesting uh, analogy that Malcolm Gladwell has been quoting from someone else, which I, I think is just remarkably captures the whole idea. And it's about a soccer team. And if you want to improve a competitive soccer team, who do you lavish your attention on if you're a coach? It's not your stars, but it's your worst players. Because soccer is a team sport, and it depends on the strength of the whole team. Uh, another way of saying that is the city of Helsinki brags that it has the best worst schools of any city. <laughs> and that is the reason why Finland has one of the best education systems in the world. Right. And I think what we've seen is the fallacy of the kind of winner takes all philosophy with the idea that people will somehow hit the jackpot leaving so many people behind. So if you apply that to pretty much everything that goes into making up a city, you end up with a different city. And a lot of the work that I'm doing now is talking about something called the 15-minute or the 20-minute neighborhood, where the two, my life's work around dealing with the aftermath of the automobile, segregation of land uses, dispersal, um, urban renewal, is intersecting with COVID-19 and our reaction to that. So the idea of the 15 or 20 minute neighborhood is you build neighborhoods that have housing for the entire population, all ages, household types, income levels together, anchored by community hubs that have libraries, schools, daycare, recreation, healthcare, uh, opportunities for young entrepreneurs to gather uh, community services, which makes them inherently resilient. Because one of the things we've learned as a defense against something like a pandemic is social cohesion is a very critical factor in resilience. And the famous example in Chicago in 90, 1995 uh, with an extraordinary heat wave, and they discovered that in the neighborhoods of equal income level, but in the neighborhoods where people knew each other and looked after each other, uh, the mortality rate was much, much lower. Yes. Because they were yes. looking in on each other. So, I mean, it's, it's just a basic understanding of what makes society work. There is no running away from this. The idea that wealthy people can somehow shield themselves from the impacts of this pandemic is an obvious fallacy. They will end up as prisoners in their own city because they won't be able to move around freely. I mean, that, that's what we've learned in terms of all the people who do all the work for them are the very people who potentially are spreading the, um, the virus. So it, it basically comes down to we are ultimately going to succeed together or we will not. I, I love the idea of the 15 to 20 minute neighborhood. Um, it sounds to me like that 15 to 20 minutes is the time it takes to walk through the neighborhood, right? Is that exactly, exactly. Um, how do you think about density in that, in that context though? Because one of the concerns coming out of the pandemic is a concern about density, about, you know, elevator buttons, crowded hallways. 
So interesting enough, in Death and Life, the book by Jane Jacobs, in 1961, she wrote about the difference between density and overcrowding. And the reason she wrote about that is the great social planners of the early part of the 20th century, when they were reacting to the cities created by the Industrial Revolution, and particularly we're looking at places like the Lower East Side in New York, where you had the tenements, they basically drew the conclusion that it was density was that was the evil, and that's why they wanted to spread people out, either in the form of what they call towers in the park, based on the uh, French-Swiss architect Le Corbusier and his plans for the Radiant City, uh, which became the model for much of public housing uh, across North America, or spreading out into the suburbs. And it was, it was a false correlation, because what we've seen is that even though New York City, which caused a lot of people to jump to that conclusion, was terribly hit. There were so many other factors at play and so many other cities in the world denser than New York, Asian cities, cities like Berlin, um, who were better prepared in the first place, who had a different response to the pandemic. There were so many other factors at play that it was not density itself. So the question is, just density in self is not a good or an evil, it's how you do it. Now, the advantage of density is going back to my 15 or 20 minute neighborhoods, you need enough people to support that range of services that I was talking about. That doesn't mean a world of spiky 40, 50, 60 Tory towers altogether without that social infrastructure, without the public spaces. And so the I'm part of Ryerson University in Toronto and the City Building Institute, of which I'm a co-founder, has just put out a study called Density Done Right, which I would recommend to the listeners of this podcast. And perhaps you can you can put a link to it um, we will. on we the will. site. And it really talks about dispersed density, that you, rather than having these extreme concentrations of hyperdensity, tall and then sprawl, we, the missing middle, the missing middle, both in physical terms, mid-rise buildings, buildings that form streets and blocks, that form neighborhoods, that have walkable public spaces, those are extremely important. But also the missing, missing middle socially, that we don't have the extremes of enclaves of the ultra-rich and then areas where only the most disadvantaged and the poorest people live. Mixing it up in the city, giving everybody access. And it's not income is one factor, but we're also learning something about the isolation of seniors, the warehousing of seniors, which is in fact what we had done. Um, and having them be part of society and the benefits that come with that are also very important. So being intentional about that, I think is extremely important. It's it's a wonderful vision, and it, it fits with a lot of democratic theory, also. So it's uh, it, it it sounds like a, a wonderful way of moving forward. How do you design a process for that, though? Because you're obviously not in favor of some benevolent uh, city mayor dictator doing this, right? So how do you how do you create a process for this, recognizing the cacophony of interests and motivations that people in a city like Toronto or Austin or New York will have? So the, the city is 
in its very essence, a cultural enterprise, a cultural artifact. This, people like me who work in this area, we're dealing with a serial creation which goes on for generation after generation. Uh, people who work in European cities, the cities are often 2,000 years old um, at most, a thousand years old. In our cities, we're talking about a few hundred years, but we basically get to spend the length of a career working on something that so many people have worked on before, so many people will work on after, and ultimately, on a daily basis and a weekly basis and a yearly basis, it's shaped by the autonomous or semi-autonomous actions of thousands of people. That said, what has been a, a hallmark of all of my work, and this, this goes back to Jane Jacobs, who became reluctantly a citizen activist. She certainly didn't intend to be. She didn't want to be. She was drawn into it because of various things that were happening in her neighborhood in, uh, in Greenwich Village. And then when she moved to Toronto, encountering similar things really led to the notion of a high level of community engagement. And again, like density done right, community engagement done right is extremely important. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the book, The Wisdom of Crowds by James Sirwicky, who wrote- Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. Fan fantastic. Uh, book which really talks about creating the right table and getting the right people around the table under the right circumstances and that if you do that the crowd is smarter than the smartest individual sitting right. at the table right so that has been the underlying thesis of everything I have ever done working with professional colleagues working with politicians working with citizens groups working with people in the development industry and I have remarkably found that if you approach that in a spirit of openness as a good listener with goodwill and you try to understand people's points of view and most importantly, get them to listen to each other, um, this inevitably leads to good outcomes. It's not as easy as saying, I have a blueprint for what success looks like and I'm going to tell you what it is right. and I hope you like it. It is complicated, it can be messy, but it is so rewarding in the end. And when I'll, I'll just tell one anecdote. When I left the, the city of Toronto, uh, one of the first places I ended up working was St. Paul, Minnesota. And I ended up working there for over 10 years advising the city, a city that was hemorrhaging, losing jobs, losing population that had been disconnected from the Mississippi River, uh, that was really in trouble. And I was called upon by Mayor Norm Coleman at the time, who was a Republican, uh, who became a Democrat, um, switched parties. Uh, I ended up working for three mayors, Democrats and Republicans. So in a sense, it was nonpartisan. Randy Kelly, Chris Coleman. I'm actually going back to St. Paul to talk to my former colleagues about what happened. But we ended up in a, in a 10-year adventure for me of being involved with that city and basically doing a remarkable series of community workshops and eventually developing a framework that would guide how development would occur, which was about reconnecting with the Mississippi River, connecting neighborhood to neighborhood, 
leading with public spaces, making every chess piece that came along add to a larger vision that the community bought into. And one of the highlights of that was a celebratory dinner that was held every year by my employers, the Riverfront Corporation, which was a nonprofit, where they would get everybody together, hundreds of people, to celebrate the successes hmm. of the previous year and all the heroes, the people who had led to those successes. And it was one of the greatest experiences of a community engaged in reshaping itself that I have been privileged to be part of. And I've used that method everywhere I have worked ever since, and invariably it works. I love the idea of celebrating rather than dividing and, and bringing people together to talk about their common interests. Uh, in many ways, it sounds like you do as much facilitation as you do design work, uh, Ken. How can our listeners, this is what we always like to close on, how can they make a difference? So many of our listeners are young people who are moving back to downtowns, or they were at least before COVID-19, taking jobs, but also struggling to find affordable housing, thinking about uh, avoiding cars. My students, when they enter professional life now, they're less likely to want to drive. Um, how, how can they be a part of this movement that I think you're describing here? So I'm going to, I was um, very honored to be awarded an honorary doctorate by the University of Toronto, my alma mater in architecture this year. And I was supposed to give a convocation address, which I obviously couldn't do. It was published in the local newspaper. It's on and, your website. I think, I think I read it there, right? It's yeah. On your and I'm, I'm actually going to do a webinar with some students coming up uh, next week on this, but I'm going to go back to what I said to the graduating students, and I think that applies to the young people you're talking about. You didn't choose this moment to enter into the next stage of your life. It chose you. And this is a moment like no other that any of us have ever experienced. What's, it's, the challenges are enormous but the opportunities are also enormous. The opportunities to think differently, to not accept received wisdom, to not accept old ways of doing things, to bring new ideas, to form new coalitions, to engage with other people in, in new ways. And I, so I think it's opening up a vast terrain of opportunity for people to engage in all kinds of ways with the city. What, what we're seeing in Toronto and cities around the world is how the civil society is stepping up in the breach to come up with extraordinary ways of dealing with vulnerabilities, inventing new ways of transforming public spaces, reaching out to people through digital media in ways that nobody had ever imagined. Um, so there's everything that's happening immediately, which is so fascinating, but also it's an opportunity to think about the next couple of stages as we move back into a different kind of society, both before and after we have a vaccine. And this, this uh, in a way, more is possible now than would have been so. And I, I'll, I'll give you one example. We've been working on taking back street space in cities around the world for active transportation, for pedestrians and cyclists. 
And this has been a slow, painful transformation. Some cities have done better than others. Suddenly, with COVID-19, this is erupting all around the world and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers in city after city are being transformed and people are discovering walking because there's not much that else not much else they can do but also right. this will be the age of cycling yes cycling is becoming a form of transportation that we're not going to walk away from yes so i take that as one example i think the way we're going to deal with seniors will be another example the way we're going to deal with affordable housing the way we're going to deal with public space, the way we're dealing with healthcare, the way we're dealing with education, all of these things are open to people in extraordinary new ways. And I, I would just say to those young people, grab the brass ring. This, this, is, <laughs> yes. your, this is your moment. I, I love it. As a, as a cycler myself, uh, this, this is one of the most positive things I've seen. I, I will say, you, you probably saw this, uh, Ken. I think it was the New York Times recently had a piece on how there's a shortage of bicycles now because everyone is buying bicycles. Yeah, no, it's amazing. <laughs> Zachary, do you find this um, this vision, this optimism, this, this uh, call for innovation and civic renewal and civic engagement that, that uh, Ken is talking about, do you think this resonates with your generation? I think it definitely does. And I think what's really powerful about uh, this moment of pandemic and of crisis is that it's forcing young people to think in a collective sense of our smaller communities and our larger communities. And I think this will allow us to start to really have serious discussions about what the future of our cities will look like, because it, it really matters to the future for all of us. I think that's great. Uh, Ken, you've given us so much today. I encourage our, our listeners to go uh, to Ken's website. We'll have his website linked to our podcast website. It's kengreenberg.ca. And I think, Ken, your, your vision of cities as, as centers of change and, and optimism and democratic renewal, I think, is so powerful and so historically correct if we look to the past, which I think is our best guide to the future. Thank you for joining us, Ken. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. And uh, Zachary, thank you for your poem. And thank you, as always, uh, to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.